Chapter Five of *The Green Odyssey* by Philip Jose Farmer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five. To Green, the next three weeks seemed to have shifted to low gear. They crept by so slowly, yet they should have raced by quickly enough. So full of schemes and plots were they. He had to advise Miran on the many technical details involved in building tanks for the fish. He had to keep the Duchess happy, an increasingly difficult job, because it was impossible to pretend a one hundred percent absorption in her, while his mind desperately looked for flaws in his plans, found oh so many, and then as anxiously sought ways of repairing them. Nevertheless, he knew it was vital that he not displease or bore her. Prison would forever ruin his chances. Worst of all, Amra was getting suspicious. "'You're trying to conceal something from me,' she told Green. "'You ought to know better. I can tell when a man is deceiving me. There's something about the voice, the eyes, the way he makes love, though you've been doing very little of that. What are you plotting?' "'I assure you it's simply that I'm very tired,' he said sharply. "'All I want is some peace and quiet, a little rest and a little privacy now and then.' "'Don't try to tell me that's all.' She cocked her head to one side and squinted at him, managing somehow even in this grotesque attitude to look ravishingly beautiful. Suddenly she said, "'You wouldn't be thinking of running away, would you?' For a second he became pale. Damn the woman, anyway. Don't be ridiculous, he said, trying hard to keep his voice from cracking. I'm too much aware of the penalties if I were caught. Besides, why should I want to run away? You are the most desirable woman I've ever known. This was the truth. Though you're not the easiest one in the world to live with. A master understatement. I would have gotten no place without you. True, but he couldn't spend the rest of his life on this barbarous world. And it is unthinkable that I would want to leave you. Inexpressible, yes, but not unthinkable. He couldn't take her with him for the simple reason that even if she would go she would never fit in his life on earth. She'd be absolutely unhappy. Moreover, she'd not go anyway because she'd refuse to abandon her children and would try to take them along, thus wrecking all his escape plans. He might as well hire a brass band and march behind it out of the city and on to the wind roller in the light of high noon. Nevertheless, his conscience troubled him. If it was painful to leave Amra, it was hell to leave Poxy his daughter. For days he had considered taking her along with him, but eventually abandoned the idea. Trying to steal her from under Amra's fiercely watchful gaze was almost impossible. Moreover, Poxy would miss her mother terribly, and he had no business exposing the baby to the risks of the voyage, which were many. Amra would be doubly hurt. Losing him would be bad enough, but to lose Poxy also... No, he couldn't do that to her. The outcome of this conversation with her was that she apparently dropped her suspicions. At least she never spoke of them again. 
He was glad of that, for it was impossible to keep entirely hidden his connection with the mysterious actions of Miron the merchant. The whole city knew something was up. There was undoubtedly a lot of money tied up with this deal of the wagon caravan going to the seashore. But what did it all mean? Neither Miron nor Green would say a word, and while the Duke and Duchess might have used their authority to get the information from their slave, the Duke made no move. Miron had promised to let him in on a share of the profits, provided he gave the merchant a free hand and asked no questions. The Duke was quite content. He planned on spending the money to increase his collection of glass birds. He had ten large rooms of the castle glittering with his fantastic aviary, shining, silent, and grotesquely beautiful, all products of the glass blowers of the fabulous city of Metzvamush, far, far away across the grassy seas of the Zormador. Green was present when the Duke talked to Miran about it. "'Now, Captain, you must understand just exactly what I do want.' warned the ruler, lifting a finger to emphasize the seriousness of his words. His eyes, usually deep sunk in their fat, had widened to reveal large brown and soulful orbs. The passion for his hobby shone forth. Nothing—good Chalusma wine, his wife, the torture of a heretic or runaway slave— could make him quiver and glitter with delight as much as the thought of the exquisitely wrought image of a Metzvamush bird. I want two or three, but no more, because I can't afford more. All made by Izan Yushua, the greatest of the glass blowers. I'd particularly like any modeled after the bird of terror, but when I was last in Astoria I heard that Ishwan Yushua was dying, said Miran. "'Excellent, excellent!' cried the Duke. "'That will make everything recently created by him even more valuable. If he is dead now, it is probable that the Astorians, who control the export of the Mushans, will be putting a high price on anything of his that comes their way. This means that bidding will be high during the festival, and that you must outbid any prospective buyers. By all means do so.' Pay any price, for I must have something created by him in his last days. The Duke, Green realized, was so eager because of the belief that a part of a dying artist's soul entered into his latest creations when he died. These were called soul works, and brought ten times as much as anything else, even if the conception and execution were inferior to previous works. Sourly, Miron said, but you have given me no money to buy your birds. Of course not. You will lend me the sum. Buy them yourself, and when you come back with them I will raise the money to repay you. Miron didn't seem too happy, but Green knew that the fat merchant was already planning to charge the Duke double the purchase price. As for Green, he liked to see a man interested in a hobby— but he was disgusted because taxes would now be raised in order to allow the Duke to add to his collection. The Duchess, bored as usual by her husband's conversation, suddenly said, "'Honey, let's go hunting next weekend. I've been so restless lately, so unable to sleep nights. 
I think I've been cooped up too long in this dismal old place. My digestion has been so sluggish lately. I think I need the exercise and the fresh air. And she went into vivid detail about certain aspects of her gastrointestinal troubles. The earthman, who thought he was hardened to this people's custom of dwelling on such matters, turned green. At the suggestion of a hunt the duke didn't exactly groan, but his eyes rolled upward in supplication to the gods. Until he had reached the age of thirty he had enjoyed a good hunt. But like most upper-class men of his culture, he rapidly put on flesh after thirty and became as sedentary as possible. The belief was that fat increased a man's lifespan. Also a big belly and double chin were signs of aristocratic blood and a full purse. Unfortunately, along with this came an inevitable decline in vigor which, coupled with the December-May marriages that their society expected of them, had given birth to another institution, the slave male companion of the rich man's young wife. It was toward Green that the Duke looked. Why not let him conduct the hunt? he suggested hopefully. I've so much business to take care of. Like sitting on your fat cushion and contemplating your glass birds, she said. No. Very well, he said resignedly. I've a slave in the workpens who's to be executed for striking a foreman. We'll use him as quarry. But I think we ought to give him two weeks to build up his wind and legs. Otherwise he would hardly be sporting, you know." The Duchess frowned. "'No, I'm getting bored. I can't stand this inaction any longer.' She shot a glance at Green. He felt his stomach muscles contracting. Evidently she'd noticed his lukewarm interest in her. This hunt was partly to suggest to him that he'd be meeting a like fate, unless he perked up and began to be more entertaining. It wasn't that thought that made his heart sink. It was that next weekend was when Miron's windroller raised sail, and when he planned to be aboard it. Now he'd be gone conducting the hunting party up in the hills. Green looked appealingly at Miron, but the merchant's shoulders rose beneath the yellow robe as if to say, What can I do? He was right. Miron couldn't suggest that he too go along on the hunt, and thus give Green a chance to slip aboard afterward. The day on which the bird of fortune was scheduled to leave the windbreak was absolutely the last date on which it could set sail. He couldn't afford to take the chance of being caught in the rains in the middle of the vast plains. End of chapter 5